Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Mini Rahman is a migrant rights campaigner and currently on a well-deserved holiday, which we are now ruining for an hour or so. <laughs> Hi, Mini. Hi, sorry. <laughs> Not uh, sorry. A new report that says that almost half of Britons sometimes actively avoid the news, a huge increase in the last five years. Are you one of them? <laughs> I mean, now that I'm on holiday, actually, yes, <laughs> which is a, it's quite bad. No, I've, I've been following stuff, but the main learning that I've had while traveling around is that most people I've met don't read the news. I've been trying to have like kind of political conversations with people while on holiday and they've basically been like, I don't know what you're talking about. Trying to bring, bring yeah. up the Northern Ireland Protocol on a beach in Thailand. Bring the vibe down. People aren't into it. I don't know, this guy wouldn't even stop playing his bongos. He was just... Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and co-host of our podcast Origin Story. Hi, Ian. Hello. Um, during an appearance on Andrew Neil, David Davis said that we had a Remainers Brexit. Are you enjoying your <laughs> Remainers Brexit and proud of your work? Yeah, no, it's fucking fantastic. Uh, I feel like, you know, we're seeing the destruction of all the values I've ever held dear to my heart. Uh, the end of free movement, a government whose incompetence is matched only by its kind of venal self-interest. It's been fucking great. So I can understand why you're so pleased. Asking you to step into uh, David Davis's brain zone for a second. Hmm. What? Do you think that he's thinking when he says Remain as Brexit? I don't want to be blamed for this shit show. Mm. <laughs> I mean, this is not like, I don't think there's a complex tactical gambit. You know, they've been doing this for a really, really long time now. And really, no matter how severe the Brexit that you offer them, it's never their fault. I mean, we must have made, we must have, I probably literally, if I went to a show from five years ago, I'd probably be making that point. And here we are now still doing it. It's a bit like a sort of, you know, vegan's roast chicken, isn't it? It's just like, but it's the thing that we did not want. And they're going, well, it's not veal. Like, None, nonetheless. Our guest this week is a Westminster watcher who founded the Politico London Playbook. He's now Politico's UK editor and host of the Westminster Insider podcast. Jack Blanchard, hello. Hello, how are you? Uh, good, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. And can I, can, can I say, I absolutely love people who don't follow the news. The worst thing about being a journalist is that when you sit down away from your job for like dinner or a pint and your friends know that you're a political journalist, all they want to talk to you about is bloody politics. <laughs> mm. There is no escaping it. I literally seek out people who hate the news uh, and hang around <laughs> with them. On <laughs> I remember in like 2018, I think, I was on a, on a stag weekend and I was stood outside at one o'clock in the morning, having a fag, and a very good friend of mine went, what's going on with Brexit? <laughs> and I was, like, I, I was like, I think, I think midnight would have to be the cutoff. <laughs> always, always that, or what's Jeremy Corbyn like then? It's <laughs> me, I shut up. <laughs> I don't want to know. So what's Jeremy Corbyn like? <laughs> he, is, he is every bit as tedious in real life as people who ask what Jeremy Corbyn okay. is like. Oh, wow. Well, that's a good segue because Keir Starmer told his shadow cabinet that to stop calling him boring because what's really boring is being in opposition forever. Is telling people you're not boring a smart way to prove that you're not boring? <laughs> <laughs> I feel a... Do I feel sorry for Keir Starmer? I feel it must be a bit weird that, like, you know, you, you, you're this amazingly successful person. You work to the very top of your legal profession. You're running the DPP. You, you go into Parliament. It doesn't seem to be working out. Then suddenly you're the leader of the party. Then everyone's saying you're going to be the next prime minister. And then you wake up one morning and everyone's just decided you're really boring. <laughs> and that's all anybody says about you. It's, it's, it's a brutal game. This, exactly the same thing happened to Ed Miliband, who, again, you know, fantastic career in the Treasury, climbed to the top of the party, he was going to be prime minister. And everyone said, no, nah, mate, you're weird. And he must have just been like, am I? Yes, <laughs> yes, you are. And I'm afraid Keir Starmer is quite boring. And, and, and yeah, it's, he's going to face exactly the same problem. This week on the show, the Northern Ireland protocol situation gets real. We discuss the government's latest ultimatum on the deal that they signed and won an election on. 
and also talking about the latest and the Rwanda fiasco. Plus, we look forward to next week's by-elections and bad news for Bojo. First this week, the Home Office has said it will press ahead with plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda after the first flight was cancelled minutes before takeoff on Tuesday evening. By a late intervention from the European Court of Human Rights, they ruled in favour of one of the deportees and enabled lawyers for the other six to make last-minute applications. Meanwhile, the situation with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the cost-of-living crisis is looking pretty hairy too. Minnie, on what grounds did the ECHR rule that Tuesday's flight couldn't take off in that one guy's case? Yeah, so they actually intervened on behalf of this one individual who was an Iraqi national. I think he had essentially a very, very strong asylum case in the UK. So what the ECHR did with his case was look at it and go, actually, if he were to be deported or sent to Rwanda, there are no real reliable mechanisms to bring him back. And for that reason, he shouldn't be on the flight. Now, that applies to the remaining six people who are on the flight too, because... It's a basic principle that some people have to have access to justice or recourse to justice if something occurs. The other thing that the ECHR said was that there is a judicial review set to review the whole policy, which is taking place in July, and that the government should actually wait for that judicial review before they send people off on a flight because then they may actually have to bring them back and there's no access to justice for them to do that. Um, the interesting thing about this policy in this flight. And the, the the interesting thing about the ECHR anyway, is that the government did this whole policy through a memorandum of understanding. And they did that so they would avoid parliamentary scrutiny. If they'd done it through legislation, they would have had a strong legal ground and the ECHR wouldn't have been able to intervene. So actually doing it through the back door mm. has kind of shot them in the foot because it now means that they're open to all of these kinds of interventions from kind of bigger bigger jurisdictions. But it would have taken too long to get the legislation through and it wouldn't have helped with the Partygate story, right? Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. It's a bit cynical, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Minnie, the policy is intended to they, deter people from crossing the channel illegally. Uh, on Tuesday, um, 0400 did, which um, is the highest number for two months. Why is it not working as a deterrent? Is there any chance of it working as a deterrent? Or is that simply not how people... Um, who are desperate to get here are thinking. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it is not illegal to cross the channel to seek asylum in the UK. Mm. That That isn't a thing. Um, you do see kind of ebbs and flows in the numbers. Just it, It's actually quite weather-related. So when the weather improves, you see a lot more people trying to cross because less mm. risk of dying. In winter, you see a lot more people trying to cross because the situation is so desperate to be homeless in winter that they're trying to get to the UK. So the numbers kind of explain themselves sometimes. But if you think about this policy logically, it it is quite logical. You know, you're trying to get to the UK. You've got family and friends in the UK. You speak English. You're desperate to get to the UK. You've travelled through 10 different countries maybe to get there. Government making it more difficult to get to the UK isn't going to stop you from trying. It's going to just make it more dangerous. And the only people who will win in that situation are people smugglers and traffickers. You know, you you increase the demand, you increase profit for them. So what is more likely to happen with a policy like this is that you actually see more people crossing in more dangerous circumstances. So you see a, a boom in the trafficking industry. You see a boom in people smuggling. That's dangerous. You see people who can no longer afford it and then they put themselves in a boat and are more likely to die crossing. So there is just no way that this policy makes any logical sense because those people have a legitimate and rational reason for wanting to be in the UK and are living in a very desperate circumstance. So, you know, there's no point in this policy at the end of the day. And what about the government's other justification slash defence of talking about safe routes? Well, I would love some safe routes into the UK. Nobody's saying there shouldn't be safe routes. The government has basically removed pretty much every safe avenue to travel to the UK. Um, they they operate mostly now on, on resettlement schemes. So resettlement schemes are where you apply from abroad through the UNHCR. It relies on you being in a very specific refugee camp, having a very specific type of case. They've set a cap on the number of people they'll take through those schemes. It takes years to get here. There are some limited family reunification schemes, which are basically 
if you're a child, you can reunite with your parents, a child under 18. That doesn't apply to most people who are trying to get to aunts, uncles, family members are over their age of 18. There's no dubs route for children anymore. So, you know, resettlement has its place, but it doesn't kind of reflect the reality of what's going on for people. You know, if you're fleeing in the middle of the night, you're picking up, you're running away from the government or from a war or torture or something like that. You're not planning to go to a UNHCR camp in Greece. You're just going to go where you mm. think you can get out or where traffickers get you out or where smugglers get you out. It it doesn't reflect the reality. And I think resettlement has like a place in a functional asylum system, but it can't be the whole system, which is what we have now. Um, and shortly before we recorded, Keir Starmer's spokesperson um, refused to promise that Labour would scrap this plan if they were in office. David Lammy has come out very strongly against it. I don't think there's a single person in Britain who thinks that Keir Starmer's a fan. So why won't they just say it? Yeah, I mean, I've gone back and forth on this so many times. I'm really disappointed by it. It's, it's quite baffling. I mean, Labour in recent years, I mean, historically too, have been kind of afraid to talk about migration, uh, have, a, have been afraid to propose alternatives on migration policy. In the last few years, they've really focused on being tough on crime, while the government has kind of simultaneously gone to criminalise migration. So they've put themselves in a bit of a, a weird situation there because you can't really prioritise both things at the same time. Um, I also think that because the government has been so strong on condemning legal practitioners or do-gooder lawyers... And Keir Starmer is a lawyer himself. So he possibly feels like if he says anything against it, he's going to leave himself open to attack on being a lawyer. And I think that's kind of weak, but it's one of the only rational explanations I have for, you know, not opposing quite strongly a really cruel and inhumane policy. Ian, do you think the government can find a way around the ECHR's objections? Or, I mean, because many sort of suggested that it wasn't like there was this guy who was a particularly special case and that the objection there was an objection to the whole policy. Yeah, yeah. Well, the others were taken off the plane as a result of appeals based on his. Mm. Um, so uh, my expectation right now is that despite what Priti Patel is saying at the moment, they're not going to get very far until next month when you have the High Court ruling on the judicial review case. Um now, the crucial thing is that's the High Court. That's not the European Court of, of anything. That's the High Court taking on a judicial review case saying, is it a rational policy to, to, to be following? And that could go either way. I mean, I, I would not, you know, you don't make a lot of money in British politics betting on the success of judicial reviews. You know, judicial reviews typically fail. We hear about the ones that succeed. So we have a disproportionate sense of, of how likely that is. But typically they fail. So we'll have to wait and see how far that goes. I mean, for the, my expectation, though, is that not, not too many, if any, people will be shipped up before that case takes place. Um, a number of prominent figures have criticised the policy, including the Archbishop of Canterbury and your your wintry fave, Prince Charles. The public... There has to be a way of us talking well, about Prince Charles over the coming years without you constantly <laughs> alluding to the fact that I rather like him. <laughs> I think that's the most interesting thing about him. Are you I go... thought you were going to say about you for a minute. I was like, fucking hell. What's Ian like? Yeah, no, it's like, he's like it's Prince Charles. <laughs> A YouGov poll found 44% support the policy compared to 40% who don't, with three quarters of Tory voters in favour. Does this is this a simple explanation for why the government is so wedded to it despite um, these obstacles? Yeah, they think it works for them, and they think that it would distract from Partygate kind of stuff, which I think it, it does, combined with you know the protocol. Uh, which it does, which has been pretty effective. But it doesn't really get you that far. I mean, I think that there's there's this sort of... Because it all feels very early 2019, or no, autumn 2019, you know, lefties and liberals and lawyers all upset about something. And then, you know, but Boris Johnson comes and stampedes over everyone in the ensuing general election. There's a sort of sense of, OK, so we're going to repeat that. That's how this is going. You know, he's succeeding on the culture. It's going to work out great for him. However, there are some differences here. The chief difference is we are currently embroiled in our politics uh, is focused on economics, on inflation, on cost of living. Now, mm. their desperate attempt is to try and pull that conversation back to the cultural where they succeed, you know, much more easily than they do on economics. 
just because people support something doesn't give you an indication of how strongly they feel about it, especially compared to the kind of, you know, to the money in their pocket and the quality of life that they have. Then there's the fact that, that it's not looking great in and of itself. I mean, at the moment, he's, ta- he's talking about, and I don't think they'll pursue this, you know, getting rid of the European Convention of Human Rights. Okay, to, to get rid of that, you have to win a vote in the Commons, which I don't think they can win. You have to win a vote in the Lords, which, I don't, which is going to be pretty fucking difficult. You have to get the consent of the Scottish Assembly and the Welsh Assembly. Now, you might be able to ramroad through that, but you're still throwing a grenade under the Britain's constitutional arrangements. And then you have to rewrite the Good Friday Agreement, which they are simultaneously, because it's in there, it, it, it's committed in there, which they are simultaneously saying they need to preserve by virtue of having a bill on the protocol to tackle the Europeans. Now, I'm sorry, you look at that situation, you're like, really, is that really going to work out that well for you? Are people really going to sit around thinking, oh, this is so fantastic that during a cost of living crisis, they're just spaffing millions, giving it to Rwanda and 500,000 on a charter flight that doesn't even take off? It doesn't seem to me like that is good politics. And I think we start to overthink it and overpraise the kind of political virtuosity mm. of the Johnson administration. Um, Jack, if we actually did leave the ECHR, we'd be on a par with Russia, who um, are not who are not the greatest at the moment. Um, uh, as Ian's pointed out, it also wrecked the Good Friday Agreement. Now, backbenchers are talking about this. One cabinet minister has told Tom Newton Dunn that Bishop's opposition to the scheme is a good reason to kick them out of the House of Lords. Um, now, this seems like a lot of uh, unguarded authoritarian ranting, but is it? do you think it is a more sort of calculated strategy to revive, you know, enemies of the people? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Totally. And, and and I think it's a reasonably effective one. I mean, there's three there's three strands to this, isn't there? There's like the sort of the ethical nature of this policy, which, you know, it's it's very hard to make an ethical case for this, um, as as you've been saying pretty clearly. And practically, I would say it's very much on the fence. Will it work? Um, there isn't really any evidence that it does work. In fairness, I haven't seen any clear evidence that it won't work. It might be a deterrent for some people, I guess, but we certainly don't know. And it's a pretty expensive thing to do when you don't have any evidence that it will work. Politically, I'm more in the camp that this is this is not bad politics from a completely objective, I don't care what about anything in the entire world point of view. Um, I do think it, it plays very well to Boris Johnson supporters. It also plays well in areas where Labour are trying to win back voters and it puts Labour in quite a difficult position as we have seen this afternoon and you can decry Keir Starmer for not coming out forcefully and saying what he blatantly thinks about it but there's a reason why he's felt that he shouldn't do it and you might disagree with it but you can see straight away it's put him in a bit of a bind he doesn't want the head when when this is being discussed all over the news tonight he doesn't want the third line of you know the BBC intro to be and Labour came out you know swinging against this he's decided that's not a good place for him to be and like I say you can disagree with that but he's obviously finding it quite a challenging thing to deal with so I don't think it's daft politics if you take everything else out of it. And in, in terms of um, getting out of the ECHR, I think there's a reason why it's Tory backbenchers shouting about that. You haven't, I don't really think, as for re- the reasons Ian just set out, that's a realistic proposal. I don't particularly think Boris Johnson would want to do it anyway. It's just so, something you can show a bit of ankle on and you can rage about European judges stopping us. And there will be plenty of people who are, are outraged that our Supreme Court said that this flight should go ahead and later in the day European court said it shouldn't you know that it's not an unreasonable thing for people to think that that's that's not how it should work so it plays very well for them politically and I think yes in one sense it's a total fiasco and a massive waste of our money and of course horrible for all those people that were being put onto the flight but politically I think the government probably saw last night as a win-win you know, if the, if the flight manages to take off, then, you know, hooray, here we are doing something about this issue, which lots of people are upset about. And if it gets stopped by some, as you say, lefty lawyers and European judges, well, look, we can happy to be seen to be having the fight with them. So I think either way, they're rather pleased with how all this is going. Um, quite how whether it translates into votes during a massive cost of living crisis, I guess we don't know. But at least from their point of view, it's put them back on the front foot following a pretty difficult week last week. I mean, historically and internationally, there's, it's not great um, when politicians rail against judges, lawyers, bishops, mm. um, and so on. And I mean, this reminds me of obviously the worst bits of the kind of, you know, the, the Brexit wars. Totally. Um, and it subsided a bit. How genuine do you think? Because a lot of people can read into this sort of, you know, the, they've got their fascism checklist, um, <laughs> or at least their authoritarianism checklist. I mean, how, how serious are they? 
do you think? Or, or, or are there enough serious people in the Tory party who have a real hostility towards these institutions? Or is it, like you said, simply um, simply electioneering and that you, you sort of punch them, but you don't really want to kind of, um, you know, kick all the bishops out? I think for most of the people that matter, it, it is that, although there's certainly some more of the noisy backbench voices who really would go all the way and all sorts of these things and God knows what where we'd end up if, if they were in charge. On the specific point of kicking the bishops out, I have to say... Mm, is it kind of weird we have bishops like randomly like in our legislature helping to make our laws like honestly is um, that's i don't i'm not sure that's a hill that any of us really want to die and if they want to kick the bishops out of the house lords I, i'd say i'm fairly sanguine <laughs> about that it's well, the whole house of lords is that weird. they're there exactly exactly i, I think the other the interesting thing slightly tangentially but apparently given we apparently have a panel member who loves prince charles the other thing it struck me this at uh, the weekend when it came out that that prince charles had come out against this policy and you immediately saw anonymous members of the cabinet who sounded suspiciously like jacob rees mogg but may well not have been coming out and and you know attacking prince charles when he is king quite soon, are we also going to see the monarchy starting to come in for these sorts of, you know, attacks from the the Tory right once the person in charge is well known to be someone who has views with which they strongly disagree? It's amazing. The, there, there is a streak of the Conservative Party doesn't really want to conserve anything. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Ian, there is uproar over Liz Truss's plans to rewrite the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we've been talking about for ages, um, but it's actually something happening. Now, um, what is her plan? There was, I mean, there was a bit of confusion as to whether it would be more moderate than they'd made out. And then we saw it and it turned out that, no, it wouldn't be more moderate than we made out. So um, you've got Section 7A in the Withdrawal Act, which is basically what gives direct effect to European law and British law when it comes to the protocol and to the withdrawal agreements, basically saying that this is where the EU law operates. Then they published this protocol bill. Clause 2 of it says, oh, by the way, uh, you know that Clause 7A? Well, it doesn't actually apply to excluded provisions. What are excluded provisions? Bits where they can basically do whatever they like. doesn't matter what's in the treaty. So it's customs, it's goods transport, it's state aid, it's the ECJ. That essentially just carves out the fucking heart of the protocol agreement and tears it out. That is what that does, and it does it at a domestic level. It does it, interestingly enough, using Henry VIII powers, which I find fascinating because I'm still sort of, you know, old enough to remember all the chat about parliamentary sovereignty. I mean, these powers are not being returned to Parliament in any way, shape or form. They're being given to ministers to do whatever the fuck they like on previous acts of Parliament or this one. When it comes to the protocol, and in many cases, not even by necessity, but by whether they think it's appropriate, this incredibly loose sort of terminology, giving them extraordinary degrees of power. When you look at what the Lords Committee uh, on SIs was saying during Brexit and COVID, they were fucking flabbergasted at the extent of the powers ministers were giving themselves. And none of those examples were as severe as the one that we're seeing here in this bill. Because, I mean, old listeners uh, will remember uh, that solving the Northern Ireland roadblock was the crucial difference between uh, Johnson and Theresa May. Um, it was what kind of, you know, brought her down. They said, oh, well, I've come up with this, uh, with this, with this new scheme. Um, call me ignorant. I don't quite understand how the government thinks it can sort of U-turn or wreck this, <laughs> wreck this kind of the thing that people will remember was the crucial sort of sticking point when trying to come to a deal. Yeah, and, and I, don't, I, I do not think that this does play well for them because ultimately, no matter how you almost get bored of saying it out loud, but this was your deal, you know, and you do start to sound like a broken fucking record. But the thing is, none of that changes the fact that it was their fucking deal. So you do get to keep on saying it, and I don't think it lands particularly strongly. And in fact, when you look at most of the polling stuff, it doesn't suggest that they're sailing in sudden winds by virtue of this. He didn't really solve anything, right? What he did was he capitulated mm. completely to the EU's demands, which right. is essentially, well, you put the trade border down your fucking territory if you're going to be like, because we're not going to put it in Ireland. So on that basis, that's what he's given them. That's what he's done. I was reading Gavin Barwell's memoirs, fuck my life the other day um, and he basically just sort of went for what it's worth they weren't you know messing around here the, the original plan was to prorogue parliament and then no deal and it was only when that was stopped by the supreme court that they had to go down this road now he was not exactly going to be deep in the inner circle of what was going on with Johnson. So you can treat that with, with a pinch right. of salt as well. But for him, he was very, very clear cut in those memoirs. just being like, no, the plan was no deal after, you know, after you prorogue parliament. So, you know, Maybe this Fuck is notes. maybe this is a Remainers Brexit then. That's <laughs> no deal. Apologies to David Davis. I didn't see this twist in this episode coming. 
Um, the Eurosceptic Bruges group tweeted that international law doesn't really exist and sovereign nations can make and break arrangements whenever they like. Mm. Um, Liz Truss obviously won't say that out loud. But, but is that the vibe? No, because they make an appeal to a form of international law. They don't make an appeal, you'll notice, to Article 16, um, which is interesting, right? I've talked about this on this thing before, but Article 16 mm. says you need to have necessary fixes to the problems. Now, they don't like the fucking sound of that because they don't want necessary fixes. They want to just start blathering away, you know, ECJ, all this stuff, you know, that, that's much more sort of existential to the agreement than that kind of thing. And if it's not a necessary fix, then they can go through the, the legal processes that are involved in the agreement. So interestingly and pointedly, they're not really doing Article 16, passing reference to it. That's about it. What they're talking about is this international doctrine of necessity. And by which they're using a draft article on state responsibility by the International Law Commission. Now, that has two elements to it that makes it quite problematic. The first thing is you, you can break this stuff as long as it's um, to safeguard an essential interest against, this is wonderful terminology, grave and imminent peril, which sounds like it's from like a 60s Batman drama that is, in fact, much less exciting. Uh, and here's the second part. I mean, I don't think you've fucking hit the grave and imminent peril status just yet. The second part is the state can't invoke it if it has, and this is a quote, contributed to the situation of necessity. Now, I would suggest rather strongly that if you propose and then write and then sign and then promote an agreement, you have contributed to this taking place. If we have explanatory notes from Boris Johnson's original letter to the EU on the plan that talk mm. about customs checks, you've contributed. If we've got leaked treasury documents, impact assessments, all of that information suggests that they are not going to succeed in saying that this abides by international law. So the end result is basically where the Bruges group is of who gives a fuck about international law, the great Putinology, you know, of yeah. the British state. But ultimately, they do still feel the need to be coy enough and delicate enough to at least make an allusion to a bullshit international law excuse rather than pretend that it doesn't exist. Jack, the vice president of the European Commission has said uh, the obvious, that renegotiating the protocol is unrealistic and unilateral action by the UK is damaging to mutual trust. Is there much sort of awareness or concern uh, among Tories about Britain's international reputation? You know, what could, the damage that can be done by seeing to be an untrustworthy partner? There is among some Tories. I mean, Tories is a pretty diverse group. There's a sort of old school, sort of nice, soft Tory who still cares about such things. And then there's a, a, a newer breed, I would say, or some of them are quite old, I guess, but of Tories that don't really care about stuff like that and think we should just bloody well do what we want. Thank you very much. And it's kind of uncharted territory in a way for us. I kind of agree with Ian's assessment, but what I don't know is how that then plays out. If we do take that sort of, well, screw you, we'll sort of make up a half-baked reason why it's okay and what you're going to do about it. Well, what are they going to do about it? That is not actually clear yet. And I guess the gamble inside Downing Street is that in the end, the European Union will not show the same level of unity on this that it did during the negotiation. And I know we've heard this before, but it is a bit different if you're talking about a full-on trade war um, with a large partner on your doorstep in the middle of a, a cost of living crisis that's hitting everyone on both sides of the channel. Um, you know, they might not do it. And if they blink, then, you know, I guess in Downing Street, they'll see that as a success. And But it's, it's a huge gamble to take it down that route. Um, I think the other thing that they're relying on is it will take a very long time. And I think that's definitely true. The European Union, the stuff they've announced today is the start of a legal process. It's quite a long and slow one that ends up with some, you know, court judgments against Britain that Britain will probably just ignore anyway. And at that point, they might start doing things that really hurt in terms of tariffs and so on. But that is all right. sort of next year or even the year after. So I think the sense in Downing Street is that, you know, let's try and do this and and, and wing it a bit and see if it helps. And, and again, like that, the there are certainly Tories that don't like it, but there are plenty that do as well. Um, and so what Boris Johnson doesn't want to be, do is be stuck in that Theresa May hellhole position where you're upsetting all sides and you can't get anything through at all. So I think his position is you kind of have to pick a team on this and it's pretty clear which team he's picked. Minnie, finally, uh, another headache for the government this week is the cost of living crisis. Henry Dimbleby, the leading advisor on the strategy to combat poverty, has said that it's not a strategy at all. What are they doing and not doing? So their narrative on this strategy is that, you know, it's the first blueprint since food rationing in, in, uh, since the World War and to position themselves as like food production leaders kind of in the wake of Brexit. They've got these two reviews um, from 2020 and 2020. 
this year, I think, as well. They're not particularly conservative, but since the original review was done, Dimbleby himself has said that those reviews need to become wider and include more people. Now, they've only accepted about 50% of the proposals from those reviews. Um, They've ditched the free school meals for a million more children, Mm. which is so toxic considering everything that's happened through COVID, the amount of times that they've lost on that issue. They've watered down several of the proposals that they have taken. Um, So, for example, policies that they're kind of focusing are include giving each school 250 quid to teach healthy eating, which is not very much for a school. Um, And they focused on things like allowing deer stalkers to sell venison in an easier way, which is pointless and useless. Um, And I think the reason that Dimbleby doesn't think it's a strategy is because it doesn't actually address the root causes of any problem. (laughs) It doesn't look in any detail at why there's food production issues, at why there's a cost of living crisis and what those solutions are. And there's also incredibly kind of a whole section which fails to address food and environmental standards and to prioritise climate change, which they committed to at COP. And it's basically an attempt to look like they're going to take action. But in reality, if they implement this plan, then food poverty will rise and food standards will drop. So it's fairly fairly poor. (laughs) Let let them eat venison. Now, it's question time, only good, as we answer a query from a Patreon backer in by your emails. This week, Jenny asks, I'm doing my tiny bit to help displaced Ukrainians allowed into the UK. I've experienced some negativity from Brits. Some have suggested that the UK helping them will cause unrest amongst some Brits struggling with the cost of living crisis. Others that the UK hasn't helped those in need from outside Europe. What should I reply? Take, take one of these, Ian. <laughs> Well, I don't hear the first one myself so much, and I don't even think there's any signs of it. It's just people saying it because that's what they think in their own sort of head, and they try to justify it by an allusion to an imaginary public opinion that they have no evidence of. Yeah, it's like, I I wouldn't blame foreigners for something they haven't done. It's somebody else. (laughs) Somebody else, exactly. Can't wait to meet them. Um, The second one, there's a couple of of elements to this, right? The first one is, it it is not, there's this issue on the left of seeking utter moral perfection and therefore being unable to accept moments where actually goodness is on show rather than greatness. And so it is not completely unreasonable if you take any normal assessment of the human condition for people to be more impacted by things that are happening to people who are close to them uh, in cultures that they recognize. You know, even I think even the effect of, to me, when people, you know, went on all the stag dues to Prague or whatever, you know, and they see that kind of architecture and then they see images of that kind of architecture, you know, in Kiev or whatever, they can imagine themselves there in a way that they just will not be able to do for many countries on earth, especially outside of Europe. Um, the second thing is that it was it was simple. It was a simple story, the Ukraine story. I mean, it really is goodies versus baddies. It is no more complex than that. It's like, you know, it, it is as simple as that. If you start, you know, if you start looking into what happens in Libya, what happens in Syria, it is more complex. You've got this group over here that's good. You know, this group, they're opposing the government, but actually, you know, they're quite hardline, whatever. It's complex and it's mercurial and it's difficult to get a handle on. And in those contexts, it's not unreasonable that people were more emotionally impacted by it. But then the other part is just like, fuck's sake, if people are doing something nice, the worst possible response, and yet the one the left does all the fucking time is, why can't you be a stainless moral angel instead of just someone trying to do the right thing? You know, and that's just so unhelpful. But it seems to be the sort of logic that if you can't give a pound to every homeless person that you see, <laughs> don't give it to any of them. Yes, exactly. Like, yes. I wonder what that'll lead to. Rich homeless people or no money? <laughs> um, Minnie, do you encounter these... Uh... Objections. Uh, I mean, yeah, and I, I agree with the second objection. You know, we haven't done as much for people outside of Ukraine. And I think that bit is not worth arguing because it is a racialized conversation. It is something that we have to consider. It is something that a lot of people who feel really outraged about the Ukrainian crisis have to kind of reckon with why they maybe didn't feel so outraged about other crises. And I think that's a learning moment. It's not a criticism. As Ian says, there's very clear reasons why people felt more of a kinship with what happened in Ukraine than they may may have done with kind of global crises that they don't have as much information about. So I think that second point is valid and actually something to listen to. 
And then the, my other gut instinct is like, okay, this person who sent in this email has done something very good, <laughs> has done something very helpful and pick and choose your battles, right? This person doesn't actually need to fight with everyone who's right. criticizing them. Like, uh, I think there is, you know, you know, I always talk on this podcast about community and what it means to be involved and what it means to step up and how that is where goodness really is and that is where action really really counts and I think in this case action does speak louder than words so it's okay to be like I've taken someone in and that's it I'm done my bit I don't need to continue fighting well the sounds from the sounds of it Jenny doesn't need permission from either of these groups of critics <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so she can just go I'm doing it anyway. She should just keep doing what she's doing. She's doing the right thing. You say she's taking someone in. Uh, you know, she was quite mercurial in the opening. She, who knows? Maybe yeah, she just, yeah. maybe she just oh, gave maybe, yeah, 50p. Sorry, that was like, my, doing my tiny bit. <laughs> tiny yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, fine. But no, no, she's I, doing I'm sure. something. Whatever. I'm sure she's been wonderful. Doing something doing, is better than nothing. <laughs> bloody hell. That's... It's better than tweeting that you're pissed off. Uh, I mean, objection. A vital democratic function. Your whole purpose in life crumbles. Next, we're a week out from two by-elections, one in the West Yorkshire seat of Wakefield, another in the Devon constituency of Tiverton and Honiton. In Wakefield, Labour have surged to a 20-point lead in the polls, while in Tiverton and Honiton, the Lib Dems are managing expectations but expect to make a gain from the Tories. It sounds like a Gilbert and Sullivan lyric, doesn't it? <laughs> Tiverton and Honiton. Um, no, no, can you continue? Oh, that's why I don't know. I can't do a full um, operetta for you, I'm afraid. I mean, there's a script in front of you. <laughs> uh, there's a by-election in Tiverton and Monitor. I've changed my mind. Yeah, there we go. Um, Jack, what are the odds of the Tories avoiding a double defeat? Uh, increasingly unlikely, to be honest, which is pretty amazing. It's almost like it's been priced in now in that hideous, like, politico phrase. Um, <laughs> but, like, Tiverton Hobbiton, like, it's a really safe Tory seat. This should be absolutely amazing. And we should all be, like, really, really excited and, and, and you know, like, can't quite believe it if they lose it next week. I and mean, we've sort of got to the point a week out where everyone's just assuming, or a week and a half out, that everyone's just assuming that that is going to happen. It will be one of the biggest swings we've seen ever in a by-election um, and to a party, the Lib Dems, that essentially nobody likes. So it's an amazing thing. I mean, and even losing Wakefield, you know, these were the seats that, um, these are the seats that the Tories based their 2019 election victory on. So for us just to be shrugging our shoulders now and going, yeah, well, obviously they're going to lose that back to Labour shows you what a terrible year Boris Johnson has had, that that is now just sort of accepted. I mean, if they were to hang on to Tiverton, um, that would now be seen as this fabulous result for Boris Johnson. Like, incredible that you've managed to hang on to the seat where you've got a 20-something thousand majority and it was only the Lib Dems coming at you. But but that is now, that is now where the narrative is at. Um, whether he can actually do it, I don't honestly know. I haven't been down there myself. But when you talk to the Lib Dems and they're like, you can see the sort of gleam of excitement in their <laughs> eyes and you don't see that very often. Um, it, it does make you think that they must really think they're onto a winner. I can't remember who, who it was that pointed out that, that you know, Wakefield was a seat where the, you know, the, the previous MP was a sex offender and that that is not the main reason that people are giving for why they won't vote Tory. <laughs> exactly. And, we, and we've got two by-elections on the same day and, and, and one of them is because... Uh, the MP resigned because he was watching porn in the Commons, and that's not the worst reason for a bylaw no. that's happening that day. I mean, it's, it's, what is these people? Honestly, what is wrong with them? <laughs> um, a no confidence vote the day after the by elections um, might have had a different result, um, but obviously it, it happened when it happened. Is it too soon after the last one for another rebellion? I'm not quite sure what's happened to that rebel energy and whether it might be revived. It feels like the timing's quite good for Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think having had that eruption last week, it feels unlikely that we're going to get the same level of you know steam being let off in the Tory party if they do lose both of these seats. But it will add to the jitters of the wavering MPs. At the end of the day, most of these people are just bothered about keeping their jobs and they're looking at majorities like that in Tiverton disappearing and then looking at their own numbers and wondering if this guy is really the election winner that he's promised to be. But um, it feels like winning the vote 
even with this pretty miserable numbers last week, has bought him bought Boris Johnson some time. But he needs to start actually making some traction. I think it's unlikely it's going to happen next week. And I think most Tory MPs are sort of accepting of that now. But certainly by the autumn and by Christmas, if he's not starting to improve some of these polling numbers, and crucially, there may be more by-elections because there's many more things that MPs could have got up to between now and then that might force them to resign. And if he keeps losing them, that will add to those fears and, and increase the pressure on him. Well, current modelling, based on the polls as they are, sees people like Jeremy Hunt, Dominic Raab, John Redwood losing their seats. Boris Johnson might be not be too sad about Jeremy Hunt. Um, but like you're saying, could the is it the existential threat of losing their seats? I mean, is that something that at a certain point is the thing that's going to lead to another rebellion, that it, it, it will just be self-interest? It's like, oh, Jesus Christ, if we don't get him out, then I'm out. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you were going, if you were going to rebel on moral grounds... I think you'd probably have done it by now. Like, like realistically, what we're now, what they're now looking at is what is going to happen at the next general election. We are essentially in an election campaign now for two years, and the Tories have got one more opportunity, I would say, to cho- to swap their leader before that next general election. It's probably going to come uh, next summer. There's some local elections happening as ever in May, and then you'll suddenly find at the start of June that the twelve month. Uh, time period on another confidence vote is up. We'll be a year out from the general election. You can just see the stars aligning then as as, as probably the real crunch point for Boris Johnson. And that is when they're going to have to decide, mm. is this guy going to actually the best option for me to, to, to keep my job and potentially to keep it in government next time? Or is he not? And of course... If he's not, they do kind of need someone else to turn to. And that, as has been widely discussed, was one of the problems uh, last week. If, if we've got another year for a candidate to emerge or to re-establish themselves, there's, there's certainly a chance that that could happen. Uh, Ian, a poll by opinion says that the public thinks Boris Johnson makes a better prime minister than Keir Starmer would, although Redfield and Wilton poll um, put Starmer ahead. But either way, it's it's quite close. Given that Johnson is objectively not a good prime minister, <laughs> um, why is Starmer stuck on that, even as the party, you know, generally has quite a kind of handsome lead? I mean, the lead's all right. I mean, you wouldn't want to bet... No, too much on it, you no. know, it can be chiselled away pretty easily. It's bigger than his as well. Yeah, 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 it is, it is. I don't know, I go two ways with this. I mean, but on the one hand, you get the argument, I think this put, was put best by Neil Kinnock, which is like, almost by accident, Labour has fallen into having the perfect leader for the moment. Because, you know, you're trying to portray yourself against Boris Johnson, bumbling, no integrity, you know, blah, blah, blah. You've got this guy that, you know, no, even if you call him boring, you're like, okay, you know, looks steady, looks like he has integrity, some decency. The other argument I thought was put best by Raphael Bayer last week at the live show, which stuck with me, the image of just like, why can't he just look comfortable when a video camera is pointed at him? Mm. There's a there's a sort of, there's something, like he doesn't really want to be there. And the, when that's true, it's really hard to bring the public with you. And I think most of the time you do veer towards the second explanation rather than the first. Just thinking like, Lots of the words he's saying are true. When you look at the overall, I mean, there's no nowhere near enough ideas or narrative or policy, including policy, coming from Labour at the moment. But the overall messaging, you get why it's there, you know, patriotism, security, trying to stretch the concept of security and the concept of patriotism in a progressive direction. This is all sensible, good stuff, the kind of shit you have to do if you're going to meld that kind of toxic culture war stuff taking place and that you need to do simply electorally for the kind of seats that they need to win. But there is something just not there about him, about his presence. And I think, I've got to be honest, I think you see that in the back end as well. You know, like I was thinking this, you know, you think about like some of the, you know, Jewish MPs who left, for instance, during the Corbyn era, for instance, okay? Like, you know, they say they joined the Lib Dems. Two and a half years, you're supposed to be, you know, out of Labour if you join another party. He could have gotten rid of that and tried to bring these people in, Mm. you know? And I don't really see that happening. It doesn't feel like proactive and really like gurning at the bit to just do this stuff. Well, I mean, what worries me, I think, is that Robert Shimsley in the FT has, has just has written another piece. No disrespect, it's a good piece, but another piece asking where <laughs> Labour's big change message is. And if I mean, that's your job. Like, basically, if you are political, I mean, Raphael Baer has written, the, like, everybody's written the piece about, mm-hmm. like, where are Labour's big ideas? And, you know, I kind of think, well, there are these very smart thinkers on the front bench. There are be some in the kind of, you know, the, the backroom team. Then you know, you presume that they're up to something, um, and they just haven't sort of shared it with the 
with us yet. <laughs> Do you still? But I'm not. But I'm just suddenly thinking. Well, what if they're not? Like, what if these? You know, these quite clever people who've came up with lots of ideas before Starmer is leader actually don't have a big vision. Well, there's a, you see, that. so policy goes in a couple of directions, right? Sometimes you get from the centre outwards, you know, which would be the policy unit if you're in Downing Street, not just that, and you'll have a similar sort of process going on in the leader of the opposition's office. And you also are sort of dragging it up, as you're saying, from like your shadow cabinet. So, you know, you're a health, you're shadow secretary for, 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 okay, let me, let me try that again. Uh, Shadow Secretary for Health. You know, you're going to be having meetings with all sorts of like nurses groups and, you know, sort of an, uh, pandemic sort of experts. And you'll come up with policy that you then feed up to the center. Now, I don't doubt for a second that those guys, whether it's sort of Lisa Nandy or David Lammy or whatever, are having those ideas and are feeding them up to the center. It doesn't feel at the moment, and we haven't seen what's going on with Annalise Dodd's sort of, you know, great big policy project. It doesn't feel at the moment like those ideas are cohering into a narrative that you can really get a handle on. Just to come in on that as well, I think in fairness to Labour, um, there is a, a reasonable consideration to be had about at what point in an election cycle you start coming out with your big ticket policy ideas and is it wise to do that in the first year of your leadership when it's ages away from election while there's a pandemic on i appreciate those things are now dissipating but they're only just dissipating we are now still probably a couple of years just coming up to a couple of years out for the election you know obviously they are going to start producing things whether they're any cop obviously got no idea but i don't think it's necessarily an unreasonable strategy to think well maybe doing it years away from election so that everyone's either sick of the idea picked it apart or stolen it by the time of election is necessarily the right thing to do but is it is it is there a sort of an absence though of of messaging rather than policy that it seems to me and I seem to remember this from when Blair was in opposition that there was a very clear sense of what Labour would be the kind of change they were promising the kind of Britain they wanted even before the policies were revealed and I suppose that's where I worry that, that like I don't really know except just like you know less less sleazy less incompetent that's all I get from it. I think that I think that is fair, and and I think their calculation is that that alone is a good start. And the other thing that he's been doing very, 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 very clearly um, since the couple of years he's been leader is just distancing himself from the previous Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party. And he's put a, you, you have to say he's put a lot of work into that, much to the upset of people on the left. But there is no doubt he has successfully, you know, severed all links or suggestions that he's that this is somehow still Corbyn's Labour Party, or the fact he was in Corbyn's shadow cabinet means that this is he's doing things the Corbyn way. Like none of those charges that might have been thrown at him could possibly stick given he's almost purged them, right. purged them out of the shadow cabinet and so on. There's a bit of a sort of, I think, a false binary between the sort of like narrative versus policy thing. I mean, you tell a narrative through policy and not for like a very detailed structure, but just a few good ideas. And for most sort of politicians, you absolutely have to be right. Careful not to give away too much policy and no one's listening and they'll steal it anyway. But also for most politicians, you know, most electoral strategists will tell you the short campaign kind of doesn't really matter. Now, we start to forget this and it may be less true. You look at 2017 and fucking those six <laughs> weeks really, really mattered. Right. But uh, most of the time you talk to them, they're like, sure, you know, you do your work in the years leading up to it. And you, a bit of policy, but a bit of narrative and a bit of presentation of just like, what the fuck are you for? And honestly, like I say at the moment, beyond the fact that they're not Boris Johnson, he's not Jeremy Corbyn, I think it's very hard to answer. Still, even now, very hard to answer that question. I think the, the other thing you have to remember as well in terms of Labour's electoral predicament, and it's so important to have this in your head, is that to win a majority of one seat at the next election, he needs a landslide, a swing on a swing on the scale of what Tony Blair did in 97 or Attlee did in 47. It's hardly ever been done by any party in opposition what Labour need to do. And you, you know, you look at Keir Starmer's Labour now and think, are they in a position where they're likely to achieve not just a win, but a, you know, a swing on that scale? It's very, very hard to to imagine that happening as things stand. Um, Minnie, one possible solution to this is some kind of progressive alliance. Labour haven't visited Tiverton and Honiton, even though it's very nice. Um, apparently, <laughs> giving the Lib Dems a free run. Uh, this unspoken pact seems to work in by-elections. We've seen that in, in, in other recent by-elections. If it keeps working, 
even though nobody wants to say it out loud, do you see it being repeated in the general in a way that didn't really happen in 2019? Mm, I mean, it's not unheard of for Labour to do things like this, to kind of take a step back or to not put as much funding into certain seats or to put slightly less experienced candidates in places like Brighton Pavilion is a good example of that, you know. They're not going to try and unseat Caroline Lucas and they, they don't pour a lot of money into it. But I think... Uh, What you're asking for there is a national progressive alliance, which I don't think that they will do because they'd have to work out how many seats they were willing to give up. They'd have to engage in conversations with the Lib Dems or the Greens or even the SNP about what they would get back. And, you know, that is for Labour essentially admitting that they're going to lose the election, which, you know, as we've just heard the numbers, is quite a hard thing to it's not a good election strategy well that's why i wonder whether they have to sort of <laughs> they have to do it without telling people they're doing it you know they're on this sort of local yeah. level because actually they're never going to come out and go ta-da because of but riots. i think if they left it up to kind of local strategy then they might end up in a situation where their numbers aren't correct and where the deals with the lib dems and whatever aren't, aren't going to work for them if they needed to enter into a coalition government like i think the only way that you can control that is if there is some kind of clear consensus around what you're doing and why you're doing it and if you leave it up to like individual seats then you put yourself in a fairly risky position because then you you don't know what the outcome's going to be you don't know what the count is going to be and then you suddenly you're going to have to negotiate I also just want to come back on something that um that Jack said I actually do agree on on Labour's vision about their kind of their strategy and, and what is happening with Keir Starmer, because I, I think Keir Starmer's been he's obviously had a previous strategy of being very quiet through through COVID, you know, not trying to criticise the government in a pandemic and trying to get the country through. I think it's really important to remember that Labour also probably don't believe that Boris Johnson is going to take them take the Tories through to the next election. And to some extent, you have to design an election strategy around who the leader of that party is going to be. And nobody knows who that's going to be. And nobody knows where their politics is going to lie. And if Labour come out too early with a vision that doesn't match that leader, then it's kind of problematic like an anti-johnson vision rather than anti like modern or yeah exactly or and you know i'm kind of deeply critical of keir starmer and i think that he should say things more strongly and i also think he's not very charismatic and that's a big problem for him you know corbyn i think he's a, addressed that yeah. I think he's pointed out <laughs> he's, that he's, he's not boring. boring he's not boring <laughs> but corbyn was able to bring young people who were excited and essentially made him into a cultural moment you know without the kind of younger voters he wouldn't have been memed as much storms he wouldn't have got involved you know and keir starmer's really got to struggle with that as well as the fact that Corbyn was kind of pure vision and he's got to compete with with what Corbyn brought to the table and also kind of messed up at the same time so it's kind of hard place for him. Finally Jack um, you were a little hurtful about the Lib Dems earlier but I'm sorry I didn't mean it they they are (laughs) it's it's only about half our audience (laughs) they are in one poll on 15% uh, which is the highest position for they, a long time. There you go. Lo- love, loved by one in six of the population. I can't argue with that. That's but, <laughs> but, but half the country doesn't know who Ed Davey is. Why is that? The lucky half. <laughs> well, is that? I mean, normally you would think that was a problem for a political party. Yeah. But the Lib Dems, I think, particularly in sort of by-elections, just seem to... Their performance seems to have so much more to do with a kind of nebulous idea of what you might like them to be rather than actually who they are and what they're saying. So does this sort of widespread ignorance of Ed Davey, is it maybe less of a handicap than it seems? Well, it sounds like being awful about Ed Davey. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> Sorry, let's stop being mean. And I think it's, it's a common problem, isn't it? I mean, I mean, always, generally, people don't know who the Lib Dem leaders. And remember, people didn't know who Nick Clegg was until those... Uh, 2010 TV debates when he suddenly sort of burst onto the scenes and everyone everyone went, actually, this guy's all right. Um, It's hard to imagine Ed Davey having a moment like that. But I do think, you know, if people don't like either of the above, then they'll often tend to vote Lib Dem and it's it's when that happens that they they tend to do well. Um, So I don't think it's a massive problem for them. I just think they've just got so much ground to catch up that it's hard to see them being having a major impact 
in the election. But look, you know, we're here we are talking about the winning of another big by-election next week and it won't be the first one. You know, if they can eat into those um, those Tory, old Tory Lib Dem marginals that they lost in 2015, then that is a massive problem for Boris Johnson and it could mm. start to tip the balance of the next election. But I have to say, if you're talking about a sort of progressive alliance um, as, a, as a realistic concept, or even just as a sort of vague thing that might end up being what's happening, you then do get into the 2015 world of Labour being accused of getting in bed with the SNP. And that proved to be an extremely effective uh, weapon for the Conservatives at the 2015 election campaign. And we, we've seen Nicola Sturgeon this week again coming out, talking about how she wants another independence referendum. Well, you know, realistically, how is she going to get that? She's going to get that by getting into government with Labour. And that is going to be a very potent message, I suspect, for the Tories in 2024, just as it was back in 2015. And that's the show. Thank you to Minnie. Thanks. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Jack Blanchard. Thanks for having me. Our theme tune is Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and you'll hear it as we recite the names of our latest Patreon backers. <laughs> Hello, and thanks from me to April Selby, Alex Marr, Atusa, Charlotte M, Max Gillian, Simon Jenkins, surely not, Emma Riesel Potts, <laughs> Kirsty Palmer, Anna, and Harry Mayers. I mean, if it is that, Simon Jenkins, can we just say, can you please take back your money? Because <laughs> well, Simon Jenkins is wrong about every, everything. So exactly. what if he's wrong about us? No, no, no. He can't. He can't give us money. <laughs> Big shout from me to Simon Heath, Alan Gallagher, Daryl Hawkins, Kina Caviccioli, Kevin Leon, Linda Tyler Cagney, Jurgen Dengo, Alessandro Mencarini, Leonie Hurst, Simon Link. And thanks for me to Brian Scott, Ros Maguire, Dan, Duncan Smith, David Housam, Chris Wimlet, David Griffiths, Niall Savile, Jacinta McMahon, and Katrina. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Minnie Rahman. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, the producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic, group editor is Andrew Harrison, Lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and oh god, what now is a Podmasters production? Finally, this week, the journalist Dom Phillips has been found dead in the Amazon with activist Bruno Pereira 10 days after the two men disappeared. Before he reinvented himself as a courageous reporter in Brazil, Dom was a giant figure in the dance music scene, editing Mixmag during its 1990s imperial phase. There he gave me my first job in journalism, as he supported and encouraged so many young writers, and we remain friends. He last sent me a message in March saying how excited he was about his move to Salvador with his wife and about the book that he was researching in the Amazon. He was a brave, wise, generous and deeply principled man, and his many friends and colleagues are lucky to have known him. Two years ago, I spoke to Dom for an episode of The Bunker Daily about Bolsonaro's response to the pandemic. We've put that out again. And here's a clip from it, so you can hear a great journalist and human being in action. In your story about Morrow's resignation, you quoted a journalist saying that in normal circumstances, this might spark mass protests, mass protests being the only thing that would sort of, you know, that might prompt impeachment proceedings. And he said, told you, ironically, social distancing is Bolsonaro's ally right now. Is there a chance then that he could ride out an otherwise very dangerous scandal uh, because of the timing, that there is just no space for sort of popular unrest, unless presumably you line up outside the uh, the, the main building in military formation. Um, I think there is, yeah. I think there's a reasonable chance of that. If He's got a kind of self, self-destructive aspect, so he might just completely blow it, but he needs his popularity to fall way below around the 30% that he's got. And he also needs, uh, the Brazilian Congress is very split. There's like over 30 parties in there. And there's a group of kind of conservative smaller parties called the big center and they're basically utterly mercenary if they'll do anything as long as people they recommend they're getting high-paid jobs and they've got influence in different government bodies around the country bolsonaro has always been against them but he's now giving them uh support and giving them key jobs and allowing them to nominate people for key jobs and that he's doing that because there are 
I think, 36 impeachment requests against him, and he's hoping to buy their support. So he might temporarily buy their support to offset any impeachment process going forward because it needs like two-thirds of the lower house to approve it. But at the same time, that's quite dangerous because these people are very mercenary and they might be temporarily on board, and if they think Bolsonaro is losing it, they may change their minds. That's kind of what they did with Dilma Rousseff in 2016. She had their support, she lost it, and they impeached her. So it's a very unstable situation right now. No, uh, looking at, say, for example, how uh, solid Trump's base is, not not perhaps the support that he had in 2016, but his base. And so we know that there's always going to be a percentage of people who are just going to kind of stick by these figures, too thick or thin. But you're talking about, um, you know, mass graves and rows about whether you, you know, you're, you're allowed to sort of stack coffins on top of one another, um, which seems like the sort of thing that might dent uh, a president's popularity. How has his how has his sort of approval ratings fared during this crisis? Has there been a, a notable dip, or has it? You know, have you had you had the rally round the flag effect that we've seen elsewhere? Where actually, it's gone up. Uh, he had he has taken a hit. He has lost support. He's basically there were different people that voted for Bolsonaro when he was elected. If he had like fifty four percent of the votes, I think, um, and there was people who just wanted the left out. Um, conservative Brazilians, evangelical Christians, these kind of people. And there was this real hardcore who were like Bolsonaro above everything. He's still got those. So he's lost support. So he's down to this kind of hardcore 30%. He's lost a lot of the more moderate conservatives who voted for him because it was him or the left. So it was a kind of, you know, they, they, they would choose him. They knew it was a bit of a risk. They thought he was quite extreme, but, you know, they voted for him. And, 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 and a lot of the people who supported the corruption uh, investigation as well. Now, with Sergio Moro leaving the government, a lot of them have, have, have abandoned the Bolsonaro as well. So what's happening is the support that he's got, that he's left with, is evangelical Christians, like really fundamentalists, not all evangelical Christians, because they're not all right wing, but a lot of them who are very fundamentalist, anti-abortion, anti-gay, this kind of stuff. And these real ideological, hardcore, very extreme right wingers. And what we've seen in recent weeks in Brazil, uh, every night at 8.30 is the traditional pan bashing protest where people uh, bash pots and pans at their windows and scream Bolsonaro out. Uh, And these have been happening in a lot of areas that, that had voted very heavily for Bolsonaro, like here in Rio de Janeiro, Baja de Tijuca, which is where he lives, uh, for instance. So, yeah, he's lost a lot of support, but not all of it. Well, I mean, that, that sort of sounds promising, but obviously, like, the strength of the opposition always matters um, in, in these cases. He's up for re-election in 2022. God yeah. knows what's going to happen, uh, you know, with the virus, with the economy in that time. Uh, we don't ask people to make predictions, but how are his chances looking at this point? Do they depend on how the crisis plays out? Do they depend on on the left or, I don't know, like a more centrist party kind of getting their act together? How, how vulnerable is he? I think he's vulnerable. Uh, and I think there are strong candidates on the right who are, who are emerging. I mentioned the two governors of Sao Paulo and Rio. The Sao Paulo governor, João Doria, is a very powerful, uh, very neoliberal, uh, market-friendly candidate. He's probably going to stand for president in 2022. And the far-right governor of Rio, Wilson Witzel, he's very clearly stated that he will stand as well. So on one hand, you're going to see the vote on the right split. Uh, there's a guy in the centre who's a, who's a very popular TV presenter who does a lot of uh, shows that are very popular with lower-income Brazilians called Luciano Hook, who nearly stood last time. He may well stand as a kind of very centre, almost like a Macron, something like that. And on the left, Lula, uh, who's the towering political figure in Brazil is still not allowed to stand because he has has all these court cases against him and he served 500 days in prison and he's out, but those are not over. So he probably can't stand. And there isn't uh, a clear left-wing candidate, basically, who could step up instead of him. He sort of dominates the scene so much and his party is very powerful. They don't want anyone else to come forward. So there isn't uh, a left-wing, you know, a a clear winner in the the left who who could take that mantle. There just isn't one. So it's very, very fluid. I think it's a little bit like the States, you know, could Trump win? Possible. Could Bolsonaro win? 
it is, it's not impossible, you know, if it came down to him versus Lula's uh, choice, for instance. So somebody just sort of, you know, living in, living in Brazil in the middle of this kind of what is a frightening time for everyone, is your sort of, um, is your, are you just sort of hoping, are you just sort of rooting for these kind of, you know, the more responsible local governors, uh, the courts, basically any counterweight possible to kind of, is that where the only hope lies of kind of, um, you know, flattening the curve of kind of reducing the death toll? Because it doesn't seem like there's any, you're not, you can't, ex- you're not, you can't expect anything better from Bolsonaro. So it's all basically about, you know, how many people can can kind of try and uh, keep the casualties down despite him. Yes, I, th- I think you're right. There, there are quite strong institutions in Brazil, which has been a democracy since around about 1985. Uh, when it first had indirect elections after a dictatorship. And there is quite a strong justice system. It's quite politicised. There is a Congress, which is quite noisy. There are more reasonable voices in the the head of the lower house, the speaker of the lower house, who's who's, who's basically the third in charge in the country, and the Supreme Court, and the Senate, and the judiciary as well. So, And even amongst some of the generals are more logical voices at least so so these are they're kind of pulling him back all the time and and, and i think he would have gone a lot further if it wasn't for this and so that is in a way kind of encouraging the health minister that he got rid of for instance he was a right-wing health minister but a doctor and you know logical and clear and you know clear in his, his briefings and everything else so these people do hold him back he's not in complete control he does have a certain amount of control he does have a certain amount of influence but not everyone so it's really divided it's a really polarized divided country and you mentioned earlier on about state governors on the left and right which positions have they taken fair enough but brazilians on the left and right have have you know they're very much split. You know, the people on the far right just want, let's go back to work, open up the economy. It's just a little flu, as Bolsonaro famously said. A lot of people have abandoned Bolsonaro because they are freaked out by his response and they think it's uh, extremely cruel. I wanted to mention one other thing, if it's time, actually. As a culture secretary called Regina Duarte, who uh, was a famous actress. She's, she's an older woman now, but she was a famous soap star actress. Soap, soap operas are really big in Brazil. And she's, his, she's a, a, a rabid sort of Bolsonaro supporter, and she's his culture secretary. And she's one of the latest that uh, is being, what they say, they say in Portuguese, is being fried by Bolsonaro, one of the latest people that they turn on within the government and start briefing against and criticizing. Uh, she did a an absolute car crash TV interview last night in which she downplayed the dictatorship. She sang. She said, oh, you guys are so morbid about uh, COVID-19, lighten up, we're still alive, stop dragging coffins around. You know, if, if you can imagine, I don't, I don't know who's the most famous soap star in Britain at the moment, but it's you know, <laughs> it, it, absolutely staggering. People watching this going, oh, my God, what is she doing? So these kind of things really don't help him. You know, mm. really don't help him. That people just more and more, I think, even people on his side uh, or people who voted for him or people who hate the left are a little bit like, this is just too far. This is just too nuts and too scary. So it's a very fluid situation. It's no picnic in Britain, um, but it sounds genuinely nerve wracking uh, with a guy like that in charge. So thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you very much. 